Welcome to the Blackcast, Blackcast 152. I am the host of the Blackcast, the titular Blatt, Christian Blatt on Twitter, Christian DMZ. Joined on the other side of the glass by Captain EO on Twitter at Jeff Duray. Agent Starling on assignment, but you can always follow him at Will Sterling underscore. Don't forget to get updates on our pal Coltrane on Twitter at Coltrane Leaks. And please follow Blackcast on Twitter, B L A D T C A S T. Like The Blackcast on Facebook. And you can always go to blackcast.com for the latest. Well, you hear the dulcet tones of Mr. David Jones, David Bowie in the background. And we play this for two reasons the unfortunate and unexpected passing of David Bowie earlier this week, but also because there's only one person I can think of who ever had an office up on Capitol Hill that this could have very well been their theme song. It's our guest. Former Republican Congressman of Michigan, Thaddeus McCotter, on Twitter, at Thad McCotter. Welcome to the Blackcast, T-Mac. Hey, Christian. How are you doing? Man? I'm doing great. It's great to hear from you. We used to uh, get to talk a little bit more often when Dennis had a radio show. You know, back back when you and I both had jobs, you know, we talked a little bit more regularly. Yeah, all, all we were were amusements for Miller anyway. <laughs> you know what? Isn't everyone in this world really just an amusement for Dennis Miller? You think so? You think they were us in latex novels? Look, I asked you so that you could come on and give us your thoughts on the presidential election and talk about the State of the Union. But first, we got to start off talking about something important. Bowie, give us your thoughts about what David Bowie meant to rock and roll. I mean, now people might be like, well, why, why are you starting off with this former congressman asking him about David Bowie? But I had the pleasure of visiting your office in the House a few years ago, and... Uh, I was struck by how much it looked like a TV writer's office, which to a lot of people, that's probably an insult. But I swear, I mean it as a high compliment. I'm like, well, this is too cool to be a congressman's office. You know, you had Beatles memorabilia, all sorts of other stuff. So uh, I feel like you must have some kind of appreciation for the thin white Duke, Mr. David Bowie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, obviously. I'm from Detroit, so we loved him for Panic in Detroit, which is just a killer tune. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you look like Che Guevara. <laughs> but uh, he had ties to Michigan, too. I mean, he resurrected Iggy Pop from the Stooges. Remember the Stooges, Iggy and the Stooges? Sure. And they went down, and then he brought Iggy back and helped get him back on his feet with new values and some other stuff. And Bowie was just, you know, he hung out with John Lennon. They did fame together. I mean, so he's the music that I got to him through, like the Beatles and the Stones and the Detroit rock and roll scene. Uh, took me to his music, which which has always been first rate. I've always dug it, and it was it was a shame when he died. I mean, it was it was very unexpected. I guess they said that he knew for, for quite some time before he passed. He came out with a new album, the new video. So a lot of fans, like myself included, were surprised. Yeah, it, it was. I think the video and the album came out on a Friday, and then we all found out that he had passed away on a Monday. And it, I don't know. It's not like if. If you see, like, oh, there's news about David Bowie, maybe maybe a tour? Maybe he's going to do a couple shows? No, he died. And I, I was just like, on the heels of a new album, it was really surprising. But I guess a lot of people have started to say, like, well, if you kind of look, there were posts on the Internet that were kind of pictures and things of him just saying goodbye. The whole video was just saying goodbye. And I guess I guess he knew. And, uh, you know, as with any, somebody who always knew how to make an entrance, I guess he uh, figured out a great way to make an exit, too, you know? 
Yeah, he was always elegant. I always considered him an elegant figure, not just the glam rock, but just even after in the less dance phase of the eighties. He always there was there was an element of elegance to the stuff that he did. Very well done, very professional, but not polished or artificial. He's saccharine. It was very well done, like Harrison, like George Harrison before him, who knew also that he his time was very short. He worked right up till the end. He did what he loved till the end which I suppose is the best that could ever happen for any of us is to, is to go while you're doing what you love, still able to produce it at the, at the level and the quality that you hoped you could. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, that's, it's clearly what he did. And, uh, you know, it's as, as uh, cliche and trite as it is to say the the music will, uh, live on forever. It'll outlive him and, outlive all of us too i'm sure you know because i think it's a fairly safe bet to say that you won't come across anybody quite like him in the music world especially not in this day and age you know well, where... in the in the in the, in the very parochial perspective at least and then in the longer picture in the parochial perspective christian at least now you've got a good excuse to explain to your wife why you rented the hunger <laughs> but, but, but in, in in the longer term you can look back, I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, rock has been surpassed by hip-hop, rap. It's the natural evolution, like Townsend talked about, where rock superseded uh, the crooners and, and Sinatra. But when you look at it, you could, historians may look back at that period of artistic creativity, and, I'm, and I don't want to start the, con, the contentious argument about the content's merit. But you had that incredible period of, of cultural renovation and revitalization, invigoration with the Romantic poets of the 19th century, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, and you can you could see that with the rock stars of the of the early 60s, especially the ones coming out of Britain, and up through the 70s, where there was just that same type of energy and it, it amplified, no pun intended. Uh, they amplify off of themselves and talk to the world and help in some way change the world. And then their time passed and some other things came into fashion. But they were still an influence, just as the poets are. And I think that for my generation, the Generation X and certainly the baby boomers, they're going to look back, much as probably the preceding generations of Victorians looked back to the Romantic poets as, as a period, an idyllic period of time for artistic creativity and cultural reference. Yeah, no, it's uh, said so much better than I could even try. I, I, uh, I, I'm winging it, man. Uh, hey. In Michigan, and I'm freezing my ass off in my garage man cave. Just for you, baby. I appreciate you uh, hanging out in the man cave for us. The pearls are a little rough, but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm sure it's it's very cold there in, in Michigan. You know, it's you know we've had a, about a month here in Los Angeles where it's like 50, 60 degrees, and you would think oh, that it's horrible. You would think it's a new ice age. You know, it's like oh, yeah, it, it's like lots of hats and scarves, and you know I've lived here long enough where I'm like you know I'd like to get a little bit warmer again, uh, but uh, that oh, that's neither here oh, nor there. Yeah, but no one. It's, should, so it's tragic. It, it, it is tragic. Now, you talked about the elegance of uh, David Bowie. Let's talk about a uh, much less elegant <laughs> much more affair. inelegant. Yes. As, <laughs> as inelegant as it gets, the, uh, the State of the Union. First of all, did you watch or do you feel that you've had to sit through enough of those when it was in your job description that you don't watch anymore? Well, I, I, I'm normal now. I'm a recovering politician, <laughs> so 
Do you ever fall off the wagon? And and no. do you have a sponsor, another former politician who you call like, I don't know, no. I think I think I might legislate. No, as usual, I think I'm out there on the island by myself. <laughs> a lot of them, a lot, you know, I went in, you know, a lot of them kind of, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's because, you know, Lennon went through his house husband phase and under he always understood what it was. Dylan did the same thing after the motorcycle accident. I don't know, but... To me, it was nice not to have to do it. Yeah. I mean, I would escort, when I was in House leadership, I'd escort President Bush in. One time I escorted President Obama in. And, and to me, it was always just kind of, you know, it was nice. But the way I explained it to people was it was very different for me as an elected official to sit through the State of the Union. I mean, I was as bored as everybody else, obviously. But for me, there was no pageantry to it. It was, all right, what is this cat, be it Bush or be it Obama, going to say that going to affect my constituents and how am I going to deal with it? You yeah. know what I mean? So it wasn't like I could sit there and say, well, I'm at the State of the Union and this is this is really exciting, which it wasn't. Which it wasn't. <laughs> but for me, it was like work. Right. It, it and, like, okay, what's he saying? What's going to happen? Where is he trying to go? Be it either one of them, it didn't matter to me because in that role, I was in a legislative branch. He's yeah. a guest in our house giving a State of the Union to the Congress, a separate equal branch of government. And I wanted to know what the cats were up to. So I, I'd, I'd have to listen. Now, you know, I, I just I just cranked out uh, the second season of Death in Paradise on Netflix. I, 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 as much as I'd love to watch the State of the Union, I don't think it would be as gripping as watching Ben Miller solve a crime with Sarah Martin. I just don't. I don't even know what that show is. Is that is that a, Britain, a British show? It's or? a BBC oh, okay. French production. Yeah, and you know, what can go wrong when the British and French get together? Look, they have such a great history together. I'm sure that the show is Yeah, the together. love. You can feel the love coursing yeah. across the what, airway. What's the name of it for my listeners' sake, but also for my sake, so that I can it's go Death edit to the Paradise. You know, I came Paradise. to it because I ran through all the foils, wars, you know, all the Inspector Morse, all the Inspector Lewis. So I'm, I was kind of running low on a British crime. See, because when we talk about to tie it back to Bowie and the State of the Union, it's like I live in Detroit. I know what our State of the Union is here, but it's nice to see crime done elegantly. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Did you uh, have you watched uh, Idris Elba as uh, Luther, uh, which is a oh yeah, my yeah. kid, my oldest son George turned me on to that. That cat is amazing. It's fantastic, and they just did like, a sort of one-off special right before Christmas time, which you know brought brought him back at least for one episode, and well, it was like a two-hour episode. So I think you might do a movie. Yeah, there's a lot of talk of that. And first of all, he's a great actor, but I love that character so much. So I oh, I was yeah. just like, however they want to explain away him coming back, but. Uh, uh, that's one of my favorite, uh, you know, well, imports from Christmas. Spoiler, I'm not going to do it. I <laughs> yeah. love the ending and how it wrapped up that the, the first run through, you know, the first yeah. several seasons. They call them series over there. There's seasons here. Because they're more but, elegant than us, Thad. That's really why. It sounds more well, elegant. No, I'm Irish. Uh, don't push it too far. <laughs> don't push it. Yeah, well, that's true. Don't push it too far. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. about it. Um, a thousand years of history. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and I, I wouldn't want to brush past that. Uh, back to the uh, the State of the Union. I, what I was wondering, you were talking about how it's work. What's it like, regardless of which president it was? You know, you have to listen. You have to think like, all right, this is one where I'll make headlines if I don't stand with everyone else. You know, in my party, do I clap here? Do I sit on my hands and like look like I'm really unhappy without being rude and booing? You know, how do you keep track of all that? Or did you just go with the flow? Did you have like a? I didn't. Yeah, I, you know, I was in a band. You know, I've been to concerts, man. And one of the differences that they used to point out, which I think is absolutely true, 
is American crowd would not take kindly to the person on stage telling them what to do. Really? They wanted to be spontaneous. Yeah. They going to do their own thing. That's Whereas true. British crowds just kind of wanted to be told what to do. Yeah. I was in the American crowd camp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what our leadership wants us to do. I don't care what the president wants me to do. I'm going to do whatever I would do at a concert. If I dig it, I dig it. If I don't, I don't. And the only time that I ever got any flack one way or another was I, I think it was during one of President Obama's speeches. President Obama, who was a closet smoker, I don't know if he smokes anymore now. Uh, they would take us into this one room off the elevator. When the president comes up, we're all sitting there waiting for him. And, you know, there's a pack of gum on the table. So I cracked it open. I had some gum. And the president came in. It was his gum, apparently. Ooh. Nobody told him. Well, he was he didn't care. You know? <laughs> he wasn't going to be chewing it during the State of the Union. Right. And, but I wound up, I didn't know what to do with the gum. <laughs> I wound up chewing the damn gum all through the State of the Union. People were calling in. It didn't matter whether I stood up and praised Obama or condemned him. All they cared about was, you shouldn't be chewing gum at the State of the Union. Yeah. It was the president's gum. It's true. It was the president's gum. And look, it there was an act. It was an act of commonality that brought us closer together. And there was also a really funny Bazooka Joe comic wrapped around it. So, you know, that should have really forgiven everything. Now, speaking about, first of all, smoking and the State of the Union being treated as a concert. Was there ever a moment where you wanted to hold your lighter up during the State of the Union? Because, you know, you were getting maybe the the, the hit, the ballad, the, the number one smoke. Sing- Only to smoke. <laughs> Yeah. And then, then I really would have got yelled at. Yeah, that's true. Although the, you can't smoke on the House floor anymore, but you can go off. Yeah. In the there, room, things like that. There, there's a few people who can, you know, no, no names, but a few of them clearly know how to find a place to uh, grab a smoke now and then. Right. And But the one thing about the State of the Union that I did like as a student of history was it was just to see him presidents beforehand, you know, just to see them acting like, you know, they're normal people. That was always one of my things, is I knew what they were, because I, I did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's an old, bad, it's a bad guitar player habit to break. The old joke about guitar players. How many guitar players would take a screw and a light bulb? Five. One to do it, and four to say, I could do that, too. <laughs> yeah. so, right. So, so seeing a president, to me, it's like, okay, this cat got to be president, but he's still a politician, he's still a person. So you'd see them in a more laid-back atmosphere while they're trying to get themselves ready to address the country. Which was which was a nice privilege accorded afforded to me by the people who sent me there, my constituents, and I got to I did enjoy that. Those were always the the only times I really liked it was the historical part of it where you could see these people as people, which if you're just at home and not watching Netflix, you just see them in the role that they're playing as president of the United States. You don't see them as a person who was elected to the role, the person first. You just see the public image that they're putting out, be it on TV or social network or wherever they're messaging or whoever's messaging about them. You're not seeing the cat beneath the, you know, the, the suit. Yeah, I I I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Well, at this year's uh, State of the Union, the impression was that uh, President Obama seemed to be taking a bit of a victory lap. Uh, Do you think that's a fitting approach for him to look back on the seven years that we've had so far is i i would have cautioned him that to do a victory lap you need a victory first <laughs> and so i would 
But they all do it. I, I'm sure that Millard Fillmore, although he didn't do it in person, sent a self-congratulatory State of the Union addressed by, you know, by the Pony Express over there. <laughs> right. So they all do it. And, it, you know, I mean, honestly, who's, you know, I know the Republicans are mad about it and Democrats are mad when Bush did it. And it's always going to be like, the, but look at the person. You know, what's, what's the guy going to do? Or if we elect a female president, what's she going to do? She going to sit there and go, you know what? I screwed it up for eight years. I'm really sorry. Uh, that's it. Drink, drinks are on me. Let's go. Yeah, you know. Drinks are on the deck. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Or if you're a Republican, go back. Bring your own. <laughs> Uh, what do you think about uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan said that uh, he criticized President Obama, saying that he, he shouldn't have used the State of the Union to take some not so thinly veiled swipes at Donald Trump and some of the other GOP candidates. Do you think that looking at it historically, is that not the place for it? Or when you're the president, you can do whatever the hell you want. What do you think? Well, I wonder if Obama had criticized Hillary Clinton, if Paul would have felt the same. You know, I think he's kind of nitpicking. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, I always had the view that if if if, if he was if the president, if I had that kind of concern with what Obama, President Obama said, I would assume that there'd be enough people across the country that would be mad at it, or else maybe it was just me. You know, it right. wasn't all that important in the grand scheme of things. And one of the things about politics that I don't miss is, and Paul would admit this, I'm sure, in his heart of hearts, is okay. So he criticizes the president for being political in the State of the Union, right? Which is in and of itself a political act by the Speaker of the House. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, if you had a problem, the you could... role is to be the Speaker of the entire yeah. House, not the leader of a party. That's the majority leader's role. So Paul was actually dropping down to what he was criticized and doing what he criticized the president for doing. Can't argue with that logic. That's uh, no. You know. This is why. This is why they didn't particularly care for me. Yeah, because you <laughs> you brought too much too much sense. But uh, it's logic. I mean, it's you know, yeah, hey man. If it, if it's that bad, don't do it. Right. Exactly. People people figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. You know, I know. I know everybody out there is indispensable, but sometimes we can figure stuff out on our own. <laughs> Yeah. Now, what I want to uh, ask you about, and we're talking to uh, Thaddeus McCotter on Twitter at Thad McCotter, and uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the uh, candidates for the GOP nomination. Uh, if no, there's, I put it. I got to be upfront. I'm not supporting any of them. No, you don't have to support any of them. You yeah, don't have to I trash any of them. Is there anything that that stands out as as you uh, as you see this campaign has gone on that you there are things you like from some of them dislike from some of them just general thoughts whatever you're comfortable actually saying uh, on this barely public forum it's you in a garage and it's me in a studio that's basically a garage no it just it, I, I tend when i do watch it and i don't watch it very often because you know it's uh the one thing that is dissimilar well there are many things dissimilar between the political realm and, and the musical realm but in the musical realm, at least you can listen to other people's stuff and maybe dig it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, you know, even if it's even if it sounds like your stuff, or especially if it doesn't, you might really get into it. But within the political realm, there's only so many songs. The three chord box reigns, and they're all playing the three chord boxes with different lyrics on all the sides, and it's the same thing. It's really the same argument you've been hearing since what 1980. You know, for my generation, or maybe 1990s for yours, and they're not really addressing the fundamental problem, which is how do you take an industrial era government and move it into the internet century? 
how do you not just you can't reform it, but how do you transcend it and and put something better in its place that matches the times in which we live? And nobody's really doing that. They're picking little specific issues, or they're playing the politics of identity like the Dems always do. And the Republicans are playing the old Ronald Reagan was something that he wasn't card because none of them really seemed to understand what Reagan did and what made him great. They just liked it. And so they point back to it. But, I mean, it's the old Bob Seger tune, too many people looking back, and I'm not hearing nothing new. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I, it's... I'm not digging it. I'm not digging it. It's like listening to Frankie and Annette, and you're sitting in Hamburg going, <laughs> my God, doesn't anybody know what's coming? <laughs> well, I would say uh, one person who is maybe saying some of the same things but uh, saying it a little louder is uh, Donald Trump. And, you know, you don't have to comment on, on him or his candidacy at all. Uh, I thought you know, about six months ago, less than that, four months ago, I thought, you know, okay, he's he's just kind of going through some motions because we've seen that sort of thing before. You know, he had a book coming out and whatever, and you're like, all right. But then we get to a point where you're like, wow, he's really leading in all these polls. He's he's at least that serious that he's still in it in the, the year that the election's held. What do you think it is about Trump that appeals to people? I mean, he says a lot of things that maybe he shouldn't, but he's saying a lot of other things that I think people are thinking about, and they go, "Yeah, nobody's saying anything even remotely close to that." And yeah, well, what he, yeah, I said it publicly. I wrote a little op-ed on it, the Trump conundrum for the GOP. It was in Washington Times. Monica Crowley was nice enough to run it. Plug, plug, plug. And so, the, 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 the thumbnail way to put this, without being critical, is just being analytical is Trump gets to curse the darkness because none of the other ones can light a candle. Yeah, wow, so, that's so, a great so, way to summarize it, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm trying for you, baby. I'm, I appreciate I'm it. mailing it in. Yeah. It's too cold to go to the post office. <laughs> so, get my dog sled out, head over. So, what I, what, the way that I put it was, Trump has, right now, the perfect rejectionist agenda. And it's self-reinforcing. He knows or at least he expresses what he doesn't like, and he does it very well. And the people who like him feel the same way and are glad he's doing it. Okay, a little vicarious, uh, vicarious uh, protest. You know, they're glad he's carrying that and saying it. But And then when Trump gets attacked for it, he's being attacked by the very people that his supporters can't stand either, so it validates Trump. That's a great right? point, yeah. Right? So... <laughs> You know, the, the, it's kind of like the old thing. The more your parents tell you that this guy's not, you shouldn't hang out with this cat, the more you want to hang out with him. Yeah, if you're if you're a disaffected conservative and you kind yeah. of like what Trump has That's to say, and kind of well, <laughs> very redundant, but and you hear Mitch McConnell say like, "Oh, we don't we don't like what he has to say," you're <laughs> yeah, like, "Oh yeah, yeah no exactly." <laughs> you, yeah, Dad, don't want you hanging out drinking booze with this cat out in the park. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who, who brought the reed? Who brought the weed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, I, kind of, that's kind of Trump. And and, and, the, and what I said in the article to, for Trump was, if he could ever match, start incorporating more forward aspirational elements into his message, they couldn't touch him at that point. But he hasn't. He hasn't yet. 
and I don't know that he can. It's a little late in the game. Yeah. Again, it's it's not a it's, it's what it really does is it reflects even more negatively on the other candidates because the only way you can do that is to have an aspirational message that transcends uh, the Republican Party state of mind, which Trump clearly reflects. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of and somebody asked me how do you explain the way the public views, why, why do you think the Republican Party is viewed so negatively? I said, well, because they come across as 50 shades of hate. <laughs> uh, and if, if that's all you are, yeah. is what you're against, well, you, you can win an election that way, but you're not going to go anywhere once you do. You know, there has to be something bigger, and that's one of the things Reagan was great at, the great communicator, but they forgot what he was communicating. <laughs> right no absolutely was, yeah yeah he was communicating he was communicating peace through strength okay that was a change from carter that's a policy that's a policy we can understand we don't need to know the details uh, what about the soviet union we win they lose okay that's a distinct change from detente i get that that's asked we're gonna go and freedom will win <laughs> i mean those were the very types of things that he would say and do and he laid it out and and you can talk about making America great again, which thinks Trump's line, or God knows what the other ones are saying, what their taglines are. But they're not really saying what everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows, except maybe some of the progressives on the left that are living in you know, you know electricity-free huts somewhere and eating their vegan uh, non-gluten diet. <laughs> right. But we but we live. And I'm serious. That internet has been freedom. That's why. The, the net neutrality was so offensive to me it was the government getting its hands on it through the regulatory process, you know, the power to tax and regulate or the power to destroy, control. But to me it was the Internet has freed you to make decisions and, and express yourself in ways that people had never dreamt of before, right? Absolutely. Isn't that perfect for a self-governing society? Our free republic was built upon the concept of individual self-government and delegation to a subordinate government. The Internet age in which we live, the founders were 300 years ahead of their time, right? 235, whatever the number Let's is. just say 300, sure. Yeah, but they were centuries ahead of their time. And now that we're at that point, none of the politics, you know, being downstream from culture, like Breitbart said, they don't get it. And, it's, and they don't want to get it as, is because it's a problem for them. Because for politicians, you know, and there's enough in both parties that feel this way, is they think you need them to make your life better. Right. Yeah. One way or the other, they're going to do it for you. <laughs> as if you couldn't figure it out for yourself. Well, and, and if right? you think you can figure it out for yourself, you're wrong. They know better. And you're, they, you're they... a threat to their accumulation of power, their <laughs> perpetuation of right. accumulation of exactly. power. Exactly. So what, what is the Internet to them? Look at look at how the communist Chinese and other totalitarian regimes reacted. They hate that thing. Yeah, they can't stand it. All right. Well, our people don't particularly like it when they can show you nice pictures of themselves handing out awards at events. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Here I am with the 4-H club, like me, <laughs> yeah. one of you people. That that type of thing. But but in the final analysis, they're not tying anything into into that type of change because it detracts in their mind from their power. Right. More you know, You've delegated the power to them. They think that's one-way ratcheting. That doesn't come back. Once they get it, you don't get it back. <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> like your money. Once yeah. you give it to them, you'll get it back. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that's the problem. The times in which we live have empowered you while the government is fighting against it. Consciously, unconsciously, it's not like some grand conspiracy, but it's what they do. Yeah, it, it's funny what you're talking about, you know, it, it being like giving away your money and not being able to get it back. It reminds me of a movie that I was uh, turned on to by the great Dennis Miller, uh, Albert Brooks Lost in America, and his wife gambles away all their savings, and he sits down with Gary Marshall, the casino owner, and tries to explain what happened, and just to see if maybe they could be the the casino. The Desert Inn's got heart. Can you be the casino with heart that can give us back our money? And and that's sort of what we are. You know, we're basically saying to Washington, "Hey, can we get this back?" No, no, we can't. Yeah, but the, but the, in fairness to the casino, number one, nobody makes you go there. Number two, exactly, that you can still potentially hypothetically win. Oh, the government just takes your money. <laughs> they just take it. Yeah, there's no <laughs> winning like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so they're worse than the casino in that regard. Yeah. You ain't gonna win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no. There's. There's like a. It's like a giant roulette wheel where you never get to put the ball in. You know. Yeah, it's more like a. It's like a pinata. <laughs> <laughs> You're the pinata, baby. Yeah. <laughs> we we all are. Yeah, one one final political point that I want to ask you about is, you know, it, it's a very, it, it, I don't know, I, I felt like last presidential election was particularly polarizing, uh, but it seems like we're, however it shakes out, we're going to definitely get more of that because whether it's Hillary Clinton or Larry David, the senator from Vermont, you know, either way, on the other side... Larry you, you, David. Well, Larry David has played him on Saturday Night Live, which it, it's it's worth seeing Larry David as Bernie Sanders, by the way, because uh, it's like one it's like once you see it, you go like, oh, yeah. So Larry. Uh, so Bernie Sanders is doing his whole life an impression of Larry David's voice. But anyway, the problem is with doing an impression of Sanders or Trump or anybody else is, is you can't make them look more ridiculous than they do to themselves. Sometimes. That's also true. And I, I don't know. I mean, you get this sort of thing where you get people, you get a lot of conservatives who say, well, if Trump's a nominee, I'm staying home. I can't vote for that guy. And you you do, you know, not as many, but you have people on the left who are like, well, if it's if it's Hillary, I'm staying home. And all that does is get the, the person that you really don't want. And, you know, look, if one or two people stay home, obviously it doesn't make a difference. But, you know, if in significant numbers people are that put off by their party's nominee – it's crazy what you could get, you know, just out of apathy. I mean, I live in California, and I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is a, a, a great actor. I feel like he became governor because people thought it would be funny. And you know, the Jesse Ventura theory, right? The Jesse Ventura theory. It's like, wait, I can I can vote for a guy whose nickname is the Body in, in terms of Jesse and the Terminator. Great, I you know I'm going to vote for both of those guys. So. You know, people don't maybe take their their sacred right of, of their vote as seriously as they could. But if they don't, I don't know. I mean, it's such an old saying that you don't get to complain. But just the idea of... Yeah. Do. See, I'm not one of those people who always harped on, on the voter or the non-voter. Because there are times when you could face a choice that you find morally repugnant. There are times where you can complain because your your First Amendment right doesn't go away whether you vote or not. They're not they're not one's not contingent upon the other. 
and and the actually the the thing that the right likes what is it the low information vote or the uninformed vote or I'm like that just that I find that disgusting in and of itself because one of the things in a, in in a republic for, republican form of government is you're supposed to delegate to people to go out and do it day by day to day right to do it so you don't have to right right you have to be in you can be as informed as you want but generally if they're doing a good job you'll know it by the hearth of home you don't need some talking head pundit who doesn't know his rear end you know from the from the from the Washington Monument, and 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 so to me, it's always been, if you think that they're uninformed, well, it's a failure of the political class and an excuse for whoever you didn't want winning. Yeah, you know what I mean, because you didn't make a good enough case, or the left will say everybody needs to vote. It's a free society. The arguments about compulsory voting, or the or the critique that you don't get to complain if you don't vote, are really blaming the victim of a bad political system and the bad political candidates that put forward, but bad political parties, and any attempt to somehow compulsorily change that by making the victim of these failed entities have to do something is an intrusion upon the whole concept of a free society, isn't it? So I don't get wrapped up in that. Sure. Focus more on the cats that are the real problem. It's not the voters. It's the cat that's in there either doing the job or not doing the job. He or she is the problem. Not the poor person at home who just got thrown out of work because the economy's tanking because Wall Street got bailed out and we're in a period of 10-year stagflation like Japan in the 90s, like some of us warned at the time. Oh, no. Why don't you go back and ask, why are any of the clowns who voted to give them $700 billion still sitting there? Is it, yeah. It's, it's... Well, we have the highest lack of employment participation at any time in the nation's history and stagnation. The credit crunch is still there, and we're stuck in a deflationary cycle that no one knows how to get the hell out of. But... Oh, no. Oh, no. No, it's, it's the voters' fault. Because you didn't, you didn't have enough information <laughs> to vote for my candidate. There's a very cynical part of me that just feels like ultimately... It doesn't make that much of a difference. There's a couple niche issues that will be handled differently, but I don't know how different these last few years would have been with Mitt Romney. There's a couple areas where you can be like, these would probably be different. But at the same time, would I feel the exact same way I do today? Probably. And as we look forward, look, I can't say that I'm excited for a President Trump, a President Sanders, another President Clinton, but I feel like one of those three, and it's really most likely Hillary or Trump at this point, it's just like, well, you're going to get some of it. And then at some point, for myself, I just have to think, well, what's really going to be so bad? I'm I'm a white man with, you know, the, the, well, not really income, but, you know, with some savings stuffed in the mattress. So how much different is my life going to be with any of those three people as president? And I don't know. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe they'll be vastly different. Uh, Bernie Sanders will probably try and take some of that money and give it to someone else. And Well, first, the genius of the founders was the separate equal branches of government. So it's not as if it's not as if Hillary or Donald Trump can get in there and disband Congress, right? Like after Reichstag's fire, with that, (laughs) I won't say the word on your podcast. Fuhrer did, right? You know, by the Reichstag fire to disband and impose martial law, blah blah blah, and then uh, and then away you are to to a horrific genocide. That's not going to happen here. But one of the things that your generation and younger people. Don't and, and your attitude makes sense because my critique of the Supreme Court on certain issues has not necessarily been about the substance of the issue. 
say, abortion, or which was before your time, or say, gay marriage, which is now. But when you take these social issues that are being decided on a state-by-state basis by the American people themselves, that are being hashed out, talked about, argued, fought over, some states adopting gay marriage, some states opposing it, when the Supreme Court steps in and says, we don't care what you think, this is what we're going to do. When five people get to do that at the height of a very healthy and invigorating debate, however it turns out, which is how the country's supposed to operate, by the way, where the citizenry determines the issue. When that happens, and I don't want to get into it's the new version of civil rights, which, which are civil rights was vastly different because the African-Americans were being stopped by government from being able to change anything at the ballot box. Right. And Jim Crow laws, that wasn't the case here. Okay. The bottom line is, why vote? Why argue? Hmm. Five people, it only takes five people to tell you how it's going to (laughs) be. It's true. And you don't get to do anything about them. (laughs) It's very true. Now, the progressives like it because generally the five votes come down on their side, right? Yeah. But one day it's not going to. See, Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court because five conservatives weren't coming down on his side with the New Deal legislation. Over time, that changed. Now, the progressives like the fact that five people can do it. But whether you're a progressive or a conservative, the more times five people can tell you how it's going to be that are unelectable and wholly unaccountable to you by constitutional design, why vote? And I don't have a good answer. <laughs> That's really what uh, what I'm looking at, you know, Amir. Right? One judge in California yeah. overturned the decision of an entire state. It's very true. Now, you may like it, you may not like it. What you really shouldn't like is one person has that kind of power and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, regardless of, of the actual decision, the, the power. And you're not, yeah, yeah. not going to get the Congress to impeach a judge over a controversial decision. It's the nature of a controversial decision. You have people on every side, yeah. which, is reflected in the, which is reflected in the Congress. So that's not going to happen. So these cats and, and chicks get to do whatever they want. And that's not healthy. No. For an <laughs> for a, for a active, involved citizenry when... Because, you know, the Supreme Court, a lot of times, if you get the five wrong judges, they can't wait to get their hands on some of this stuff and decide it's for you. Yeah, they <laughs> you, you definitely can tell when, you know, which justices are happy about which legislation, you know, in the way that you can just you can see them practically. Well, you can't really see them, but it's in those courtroom sketches. They, they have a very good artist who can show them licking their chops, even if it's only a still photo, depending yeah, on what even, it is. It's not even so much a Republican-Democratic yeah. issue. It's a question of human nature. Because we've seen for decades Republican appointees, from a conservative point of view, go south, right? Or yeah. as the media likes to say, they grew in office, which means they grew with a <laughs> bent to the left like the Leaning Tower of Pisa once you put them in. <laughs> right. So... So, but what happens is, you're one of nine people, man. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you got a job for life. Yeah, and they can't vote you out. And unless you commit some like a high crime or misdemeanor or something, they can't get rid of you. Nobody can. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. So, so what are you gonna do? Are you gonna be able to restrain your own view of how you want things to be? And be bound by precedent 
And even though you think, well, I'd really wish it wasn't the case, but it's been like this long enough, or this was the original intent, and if you people want to change it, you've got to change the Constitution yourselves. There's a process in the document that allows you to do that. Not easy, not supposed to be, but go ahead. You know, I mean, women were, were, were oppressed without the right to vote for a century, okay? Uh, for a century and a half, they got the right to vote. They got the right to vote. They changed the Constitution without the power to vote, for God's sake. <laughs> okay? Don't yeah. tell me it's too hard to change the Constitution. Women were able to change the Constitution <laughs> when they didn't have the right to vote. That's a great point. <laughs> uh, well, Nothing's it's... impossible. Yeah. My point is, is a judge going to sit back and restrain themselves? Or are they going to grab that case? Well, you know, I can see a way that we can have a proper outcome. Yeah, and that's really that's uh, that's that's really hard for somebody to restrain themselves from doing that. Which seems like all the more reason why you should be happy to be on the outside, not even looking in, just on the outside. You occasionally glance through the window and go like, "Yeah, I don't want to shop in that store," and just keep on about your business, and you know, just. Stay, stay on the outside, because well, you make too the, much sense, Thad. One of the one of the things, Christian, that I can't stress enough is, and it's unfortunately no longer just the left that believes it, but a lot of the right believes it. And he, all you got to do is look at some of the Facebook. You know, it's too many people believe that politics is life. No, politics is part of life, man. Life is far bigger and more beautiful than that little cesspool of of internecine warfare and, and backstabbing and, and redistribution of everybody's money for political gain. I mean, it's just real life, man, is the big gig. <laughs> Not that subset, subsets. I don't know if they taught that to your generation. They used to teach my generation sets and subsets, right? Well, too many people think that the big set is politics and a subset is life. Well, the reality is life is the big subset. Politics is the subset. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And, and deal with it when you have to, when things are bad, and do your civic duty. And, and you know, just keep America on the path that it's supposed to be, which is a beacon of freedom, an example of what we can do with that freedom to all the world. That's it. Or we fail. Yeah. And and everybody laughs their ass off at us and becomes a good little comrade again or becomes <laughs> a good little fascist again. Right. And the, and, and the last best hope of Earth perishes despite Mr. Lincoln's hope. Well, uh, what we can always do is turn to some of the other subsets when the the subset of politics makes us scratch our head. We can turn to the blood and circus of football, which is not what it used to be. Now, well, In Detroit, it's more blood than circus. <laughs> Although we do get a circus every now and then when we go through coaching GM change. <laughs> yes, it is a bit of a circus. That's actually what I was going to ask you. Now, your Lions not in the playoffs. Do you watch? Do you root for another team, or do you just root as hard as you can against the Packers? Like, How do you look at the playoffs when the Lions aren't in it? Well, I don't, I don't hate. You know, I mean, I hated the Colorado Avalanche back in the day. I dislike the Penguins intensely when the Wings were winning and battling those guys. Sure. The, the Lions don't really have a hatred of other teams because I'm too busy hating my own. <laughs> There's only so much hate in your heart. Is that really? Well, from Detroit, I wouldn't make that assumption. <laughs> but, 
Right. But, but, but the Lions, to me, I'm so obsessed with the Lions. I love them so much that my, my concentration is on them. And I don't, and why they don't win as opposed to blaming the Packers for beating them. Do you know what I mean? I do. Like, I know exactly why, what you mean. Yeah. Why can't we beat them? <laughs> I'm practicing what I preach. I'm trying to light a candle. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I think that, you know, to me, it's it's always with with the Lions, it's 57 years. And speaking of representative institutions, I mean, if you track the decline of Detroit from its zenith in the 50s to where it went through bankruptcy, track the Detroit Lions, 57 years of what, one playoff win? Yeah. Since their last championship, continued an aptitude within the governing class, the ownership class, and, and you can just see it. I mean, it would make a great book. I mean, I've got to get Plimpton's old book, Paper Lion, when he went to training camp with him in the 60s. But somebody should write a book about how the Lions actually mirror the city of Detroit. They represent, they reflect the city of Detroit probably better than any elected officials who's ever sent there. I think that's a great well, idea. Why yeah. has someone not written that book? Because... Well, because no one will pay them to do it. Ah, therein lies the problem. <laughs> although although I, I would make the argument that if you made if you published it, the Ford family would probably buy all the copies and get rich. <laughs> See, that's yeah. a great way to do it. Well, yeah, yeah, I know my I know my market, man. Yeah. <laughs> but with, you know, with the Lions, you know, the big thing now is we hired Bob Quinn from the Patriots. Everybody's everybody's. You know, and unfortunately, the Ford family and their their friend, the new president, have talked about keeping Caldwell. Now, I'm okay if Caldwell stays. Give him a third year as kind of a rubber match season. See if he's as good as the first or as bad as the second. I'm okay with that. But now the new GM's kind of boxed in because if he keeps Caldwell, everybody will say he's a toady for the Fords, which was a large part of the problem that people perceived over the years. If he fires Caldwell, then a whole lot of African American Lion fans are going to be pissed. Because he, Jim Caldwell was our first African-American president or head coach, and he didn't get a third year like a lot of the other bums that we've had in the past. Yeah, even worse that's record. a great point. So, so Quinn's in a bad spot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now, now if they do eventually part ways with Caldwell this year, uh, the guy I want, you, you want to you talk about a guy who's got an office like a comedy writer, go look at uh, this picture of the Patriots court, defensive coordinator Matt Patricia. You tell me that you couldn't see that guy sitting in the city of Detroit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And instill and instilling a little fire into the Lions. But again, I mean, I'm all right giving Caldwell that third year. But and Patricia may or may not. I guess the Browns didn't hire him, so he'll be there. They're talking about, you know, to McDaniel's, and I, I don't want an offensive guy. Detroit is a blue collar town, and you know, one of the mistakes that I think the Lions have always made is they've always wanted the flashy offense. You know, and they spent a lot of money there. When in reality, a blue-collar town, look at Pittsburgh. Yeah. The steel Curtain, man. What do they call you when know, the Steelers, and Miller would know this. Miller would appreciate this if, you know, if you if could wake him up for any period of time. <laughs> and, and, and every I remember the Steel Curtain. That was the defense's nickname, yeah, right? absolutely. Terry Bradshaw, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth, <laughs> Franco Harris. The offense didn't have a nickname. <laughs> Right? They, they didn't need it. Town. Yeah. Detroit, we had the Silver Rush. We've never had a nickname for the damned offense because blue collar people, we hard hit hard to send <laughs> the hearth of home, right? Against all comers. Yeah. Right? Take it to them. We just want yeah. you to stop them. You don't have to even do anything. You just stop them as, you know, whatever it takes. Yeah, well, there's an affinity, you know. I mean, there's the affinity, not for the flashy, handsome guy. I mean, that's why, you know, St. Louis. 
they're all Rams in the old, what was it, the greatest show on turf, right? Yeah. yeah, okay, St. Louis. But you come to Detroit, we want the guy who looks like a defensive lineman. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> we see that guy next to us every day on the line at Ford. Yeah. Or we are that guy, right? The hard, scrabble, resilient fighter, the goal line stand. You know, I mean, we had Barry Sanders, and people love Barry, but they 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 loved him. But they also loved all their defensive guys from the from the past. You know, Al Bubba Baker and those guys. You know, Mean Joe Green for Dennis's people out there in Pittsburgh were probably he was probably better loved than than Bradshaw, right? I, I, Dwight White and those guys, Jack Lambert, for God's sake. Yeah, Jack Ham. I remember these guys. I live in Detroit. <laughs> All right. Look, looking even, fondly, even, yeah, even, to the Steel even City, with sure. The Dallas Cowboys, man. It was the doomsday defense, wasn't it? Right. It, what, it, is it, what, what did they call the the offense with Roger Staubach? The whole thing. What they call it? They didn't. Because <laughs> they, they didn't need to. And, and even in Miami, <laughs> right? Yeah. No name defense with Bonacani and those guys. And then later on, they had the Killer Bees with some people, but. It's always defense. So to me in Detroit, you know, one of the things that's why I like Patricia is you build it from the defense. They love Terrell. Terrell Austin is, is loved in Detroit, our defensive coordinator, because he, he made him a great defense last year. And they, even after key losses, were still all right this year. You know. Right. But anyway, I digress. You got me talking lions. I, I did, and uh, you know, I thought it was a, I thought it was a fun way to go out, and I didn't realize that it was going to be quite so fun. <laughs> a rant, a rant worthy of Miller. <laughs> That's good. That's what we need. Well, look, Thad, I really appreciate you All taking right, some babe. time sitting out in the cold in the garage. That's our friend Thaddeus McCotter on Twitter at Thad McCotter. Thank you, Thad McCotter. As I said on Twitter at Thad McCotter. We'll be right back. Coming for you. I'm a space invader. I'll be a rock and rolling bitch for you. Keep your mouth shut. Just walk a lot of big monkey birds. And I'm about to knock a brain for the world. Welcome back to the Black Cast. You didn't really go anywhere. It's just old radio instincts like the welcome back but i'm back and joined now by our friend christian toto who's the editor of hollywood in toto and that's toto.com also on twitter at hollywood in toto christian welcome back to the black cast thanks so much for making some time for us no problem thanks for having me absolutely now before we dive into this morning's oscar nominations let's talk about two tremendous losses for the world of entertainment uh alan rickman we found out about today and earlier this week david bowie uh give us your thoughts we'll start with the most recent uh alan rickman who of course so many of us first saw him as hans gruber in Die Hard and so many other great roles uh, across the many years in his career. Uh, give us some of your thoughts about uh, about Alan Rickman. It's so shocking, and often we hear about actors who kept their health concerns private, and I certainly don't begrudge in that, but it also ends up just being such a, a shock to the system when you hear they're gone. You know, Rickman was interesting because, uh, you know, theatrically trained, a very powerful presence, but in a way, I think his role in the Harry Potter franchise really sums him up because it was so complex 
And here he is in the middle of this big budget mega franchise. And maybe he should be overwhelmed or maybe he should be a non-factor. Maybe he should just be a small part of the bigger picture. But you know what? He was so integral to that series and he was so fascinating to watch. And you get the sense that all of his skills were still there, even amidst all the razzle-dazzle of Hollywood. So I, I don't know. I mean, Hans Gruber is it for me. And if a lot of people, the diehard character will resonate forever. But uh, I think in a way, it really showed just what he could do to kind of pop in a big budget franchise. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, he obviously as kind of the definitive action villain in Die Hard as Hans Gruber, you know, it just it's so many of, of his lines being so classic. But, you know, he's to me, Die Hard is one of the greatest unsung Christmas movies of all time. But then he's in an actual widely accepted Christmas movie, Love Actually. He's fantastic in Galaxy Quest. You know, like you watch that and you feel like, I feel like this is what Leonard Nimoy really felt like. You know, I feel like we were really getting to see that. Uh, That was one of those surprise movies. But to me, the testament to a great actor is how good are they in an otherwise bad movie? And That's a great point. I thought Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was terrible. But he was so good as the sheriff of Nottingham. So you can't dismiss it entirely, you know? And just saying things like cancel Christmas, you're like, well, this is great. You know? <laughs> he's he's so good. And, you know, the, the example that I recently used is, uh, you know, there's that... Uh, that awful Star Wars Christmas special that you can find on the internet. And Harrison Ford's great in it. You believe he's Han Solo. Everything else is garbage, but you're like, no, he's really in there, and he's. you believe that that's a character. And that's basically Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, is Alan Rickman's uh, Star Wars Christmas special, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, I love that point. It actually reminds me of what I call the Hackman routine, where Gene Hackman was great in everything he did. And he did a lot of good films, but he also did a lot of garbage and. It really hurts my soul that his last big screen major credit will be Welcome to Mooseport with Ray Romano, yeah. which is a terrible movie, and he's great in it. And he, he, <laughs> you can't take your eyes off him. And that's Gene Hackman, and that was Alan Rickman, too. Yeah. No, that, that's a that's – a, oh, Welcome to Mooseport. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a great poll, but, uh, yeah, very very upsetting for, for Mr. Hackman. Now, uh, one of your contributors at HollywoodInToto.com, I believe his name is Barry Worst, he wrote about how David Bowie made movies better. So talk a little bit about that and give some of your own thoughts about, you know, there's a lot to say about David Bowie the musician, but – not to forget what a great actor he was. I mean, you know, Basquiat alone, where he plays Andy Warhol, you know, I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, there are so many stars, so many pop stars who are so magnetic on the stage. I mean, think about Bono, for one, kind of jumps to my mind. You know, could he act? Could he kind of segue into a film career? You know, we've seen Courtney Love do it fairly effectively, although I think she's been out of the film scene for a while, but... Yeah, but in that Larry Flint movie, she was so fantastic. Yeah, she was. She was. It's kind of a shame that she hasn't done more. And some rap stars have made a nice transition as well, but David Bowie was perfect for the big screen. And, you know, in a way you think, oh, we see so much of him. We know him as the Ziggy Stardust. And and how can he kind of make that shift? But he did, and he did it beautifully. And I also have to give him credit for choosing roles that, you know, let him shine, that kind of worked with directors of consequence. You know, I always think that being a movie star is two things. One is having talent, and two is pairing up with the right directors. I mean, look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. When he got famous, what did he do? James Cameron, 
um, uh, Ivan Reitman. He paired up with the best guys working in that that era, and made him a big yeah, figure. Yeah, absolutely. So I, think that, I think that partly what David Bowie was able to do was kind of align with quirky, visionary types. And you know, there's not every role was perfect, but I think his his batting average was pretty darn good. It was pretty good, yeah. And you know, talk about quirky visionaries that he worked with. You know, my first awareness of David Bowie really was, you know, I'd heard his name, but I, I didn't really know the music, was the movie Labyrinth. Now, when I was 10 years old, God bless her, I dragged my grandmother to the movie theater to take me to see Labyrinth. All I knew about it was it was George Lucas, so I'm like, all right, great, that's Star Wars. Jim Henson loved the Muppets. What could go wrong? But I'm pretty sure that was the last time my grandmother let me pick a movie for us to watch, which is a complete aside. I went one for three. Like, I would stay with my grandparents for a week every summer, and we'd go to a movie one day. So 1984, I was like, let's go see Gremlins. Well, that that she didn't like that one. But the one she did like was Back to the Future in 1985. So at least I got one that she's like, that Michael Fox from the TV, he was really good in that. So <laughs> at least I had that. But anyway, in 1986, I make her sit through Labyrinth, and pretty much... A couple minutes in, you know, when one of the Muppets is taking a leak in the river, I'm like, uh-oh, this probably wasn't the movie. But I'm like, well, this guy's crazy. And, you know, the the sequence that you see a lot is him with, with the baby. And uh, we'll listen to a little snippet of that right now for our listeners at home. You remind me of the babe. Babe with the power. Power of voodoo. You do. Remind me of the babe. A goblin, babe. <laughs> well, <laughs> I saw my baby crying hard as babe could cry. What could I do? My baby's love had gone and left my And I mean, look, that's crazy. He's, you know, he's this like crazy goblin king throwing a baby around and there's all these creatures. And he was this great, scary presence. And, you know, I... I think it's not everyone can act with a room full of Muppets and have you believe it. You know what I mean? It's it's not the easiest thing. And uh, I don't know. I mean, he's great in that movie. It's a really weird movie. And I don't know that a 10-year-old or his 70-year-old grandmother should have seen it. But at the same time, you know, he's fantastic in that movie alone, but obviously in so many others. Wouldn't you agree, Christian? Yeah, I mean, the hunger, I think, scarred me when I saw it as a young person. <laughs> it was just so weird and, and kind of, it was erotic before I was ready to see erotic horror movies and creepy and the makeup was excellent. And I, you know, in, in revisiting these particular movies with my colleague at Hollywood and Toto, I, I want to watch them again. I want to watch Labyrinth. I want to watch The Hunger again. And I want to check out some stuff. And uh, yeah, so I, that's another sign of, of his impact and, and the fact that it lasts. And listen, there are a lot of movies, especially from the 80s, which is 
kind of my personal heyday as far as growing up and, and discovering pop culture that I don't want to see again or that I watch and I, and I kind of wince at. And I suspect a lot of his stuff is going to stand up, even if it's dated with the technology. Yeah, no, you'll certainly get that. Yeah, you know, the yeah. funny it's funny because I think I've talked about this on the podcast. There's a perfect example for movies that don't hold up. There was a movie that I loved when I was in high school. It's called Hiding Out. John Cryer is the star, so that'll tell you something about the movie right there. He starred in a movie. And, you know, he's like a, a Wall Street banker who he has to go into witness relocation because he's going to testify and a mob boss. Then his his handlers get killed, so he goes and hides out in Pittsburgh with his cousin, and he goes to high school. And I watched it semi-recently, within the last five years. I'm like, oh my god, this movie's awful. But I loved that movie so much. So a lot of times you don't want to revisit, but I feel like Labyrinth in particular is something that you can, you know, take a trip down memory lane and actually enjoy. Yeah, the one thing about the 80s, they, all, they would take these people who were just about to become famous or had just landed a pretty cool project, throw them in a movie with a very weak script and hoped their charisma would kind of carry the day. I'm thinking like Eddie Murphy in uh, Golden Child and Jumpin' Jack Flash with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, well, a better example for Eddie Murphy is that movie Best Defense with Dudley Moore, and it's like two parallel stories being told. You know, Eddie Murphy sort of propped up Golden Child, but uh, nobody could prop up Best Defense. Anyway... (laughs) We could talk about movies from 30 years ago all day, and maybe maybe we will another time. But uh, this morning we had the Oscar nominations, and, uh, you know, there's some things that were not very surprising. A uh, lot of nominations for The Revenant. Um, and look, I think Mad Max Fury Road was, was a really fun movie, and I thought it was good. It's not the kind of movie that I expect to get 10 nominations, regardless of what the nominations are. It's just not, you know, it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's still a genre film. So that kind of surprised me. Was there anything that surprised you, Christian, when you saw the nominations? A couple of things. Yeah, no, I, I totally locked in on Mad Max for the reason you mentioned. And even though I think I'm one of the few critics in the country who didn't love that movie, I love the fact that they nominated it. I love the fact that it's in the conversation. Yeah. Because the Oscars are so stuffy and so biopic heavy and so precious at times that we've got The Martian and Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, that's really, really a revelation in a way, and I hope it continues. Let's, let's throw a comedy in there next year and see what happens. That would be fantastic. And I love that. And I have to say, my favorite movie last year wasn't even in the mix of the rest picture, was Creed. I thought it was a terrific Oh, Creed was fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it's great to see uh, Stallone uh, yeah. get the nomination for uh, supporting. But yeah, the fact that the movie, the director, weren't in the mix. But there's a movie that I was relieved was not nominated for Best Picture. And that's David O. Russell's Joy, uh, which, appropriately enough, it was a movie that felt like it was made by QVC. When, if you, it's funny if you know what the movie's about. Not saying that to you, I'm saying that to people listening. Um, but uh, it was just one of those things where you're like, why did he choose David O. Russell? This story that's not that interesting. Like, this is a trumped up version of that woman's real life story. So her real life story is even less interesting than this. So this is them fictionalizing it. And, you know, it, it there is a there's a kernel of a story in there. It's great. She accomplished this on her own. She went from that and, you know, made good. But God, it's just like Jennifer Lawrence, just because David O. Russell's directing a movie, you don't have to say yes. At least Bradley Cooper's, you know, only barely in it. You know, he didn't have to suffer through that much of this movie. What did you think of Joy? Watching Christian would be like, oh, it was my favorite movie of the year. <laughs> it's just beyond, uh, just below uh, Creed. No, I agree. 
it was like we got the whole band back together again, but the sound isn't quite the same. You know, De Niro is there and Cooper and, and, and uh, Lawrence. Let me tell you, I thought Lawrence was wonderful in the film. Yes. So her accent kind of came in. Came in what? I'm not quite sure what it was. Shade, shades of the aforementioned Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The uh, <laughs> accent comes and goes. But right. No, she's good in it, but God, De Niro's one of our greatest actors of the last, what, 40 years. But not in that movie, he's not. You know, it's like he's not even phoning it in. You know, it's like he's giving dictation to someone else to phone it in because he doesn't want to reach over and pick up the phone. He he was studying his script from the intern while he was uh, in between. <laughs> now, see that? Yeah, you know, De Niro's character is so weird in the movie because he opens in the movie and he's a jerk and he's manipulative and he's this weird type of character with a lot of energy. And then we never see that part of him again the rest of the movie. I'm like, <laughs> anyone, what's going on with this character? Where's the... I don't get the arc. I don't get the whole process. And I felt that way about a lot of the, that particular movie. I think maybe a better movie is QVC, is a movie sort of behind the scenes, what's going on there, sort of the human psychology yeah. that they tweak. It's true, because we only get like a little bit of that, you know, and we, we see the on-air hosts and, and mm -hmm. what they're like, and the whole thing about how that works would be interesting. And, you know, a movie that... Uh, was nominated for Best Picture, The Big Short, is a movie that I thought was pretty good, but that's one I would, would have loved to have seen a documentary where they interviewed those guys. I would have been much more interested in that than the fictionalized version of that story. And at the same time, it's like, at least if it was the real people, but it's like, well, this is, this is a work of fiction. This is a drama. I can't be invested in these people who you know, you can tell are going to get rich off the collapse of the economy because they're smart enough to see it. And there's something to be said for that, that they're smart enough to see it. But it's like, I can't root for those guys, you know? Yeah, it was like the hateful eight. Who do you kind of, who's on your side or who you, who's the, where are the white hats? It's all black hat types. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that was one of the problems I had with it. And uh, I admired the big short because it's very clever and it tries to make a very droll subject. Interesting. I mean, you know, putting Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain fiscal policy. And I, I'm, hey, I'm, as, I'm there. A, as a filmmaking standpoint, that stuff was great. And I think that's because Adam McKay had mostly done comedy. I mean, you know, he was a writer at SNL not that long ago. It was less than 20, it was like 15 years ago. He's a writer at SNL. So, you know, we're going to have Selena Gomez explain things. Like, that stuff was all very funny. Like, I, I but. And there's like some laughs and, you know, there's funny things about Steve Carell's character and things along the way. But at the same time, it, yeah, it's hard when you can't root for any of these people. In fact, you shouldn't be rooting against everyone in the movie, mm -hmm. you know. So Well, the one character who seems noble, and by the way, I'm, I'm already annoyed at him, is Brad Pitt, who played basically the same character in 12 Years a Slave. He kind of pops in mid-movie. Yeah. He's this sort of noble he's got this sort of soulful appearance he knows what's right and knows what's wrong and then he goes away and it just, it just feels like it feels like brad pitt patting himself on the back for being such an advanced enlightened soul and it, and you know he's a very good actor and i like his choices and i think he's getting better but it just seems like that's a real ego trip to me yeah maybe that's one of those things if his production company plan b produces your movie he gets to be that character in your movie you know he gets to be the guys like all right let me move everything along uh in terms of some of the other uh nominees for best picture uh tell me if any of them stand out for you uh spotlight bridge of spies brooklyn we talked briefly about mad max uh room which is not 
The Room, which is a completely different movie that we don't have time to talk about. Uh, and, of course, The Revenant, which I'll talk about The Revenant in a moment. But uh, sure. what are your thoughts on some of these other movies? I think Spotlight is the prohibitive favorite to win. It's a very, very good movie. It's the kind of film where everything is performed capably. The story is is important and powerful. It just didn't grab me by the collar, and maybe that's too much to ask for for a particular movie. But it's very, it's a very fine film, terrific performances. Um, Room was very powerful. I, you know, I, I, this is the kind of year I didn't fall completely in love with any movie, and I even Brooklyn. Yeah, so as charming as can be. Which Brooklyn? I've got a. Uh... Academy screener sitting uh, in my living room. I'm excited about because I know the screenplay was adapted by Nick Hornby, who's a novelist who wrote, you know, uh, what's that movie? High Fidelity about a boy. He wrote these great books that were made into fantastic movies. So I'm excited to see that. Uh, But uh, yeah, I haven't seen that yet. Um, The interesting thing, and like I said, we'll talk about The Revenant in a moment. There is a possible 10 film they could possibly vote for 10 films or nominate 10 right. films. That's what I'm trying to say. And they only nominated eight. And I haven't seen it, but I've, I know people loved it. It seems like an Oscar-nominated movie. Were you surprised that Carol wasn't nominated? You know, I wasn't that surprised. I think people admired it and found it was technically sharp. But, I, again, it was another movie where they felt it was a little bit too precious, a little bit too uh, sterile in a way. It just didn't have the passion. And that was even... Even people who look to it as a sort of a gay rights part of part of that movement or sort of a, you know, now we can tell these stories and now we have an audience for it and, and, and now Hollywood will go in this direction. Even the people who admired it from that perspective didn't seem to be in love with the movie. They just seemed to be more uh, restrained in their admiration. So I wasn't that surprised. I, you know, I think the acting nominations are where it's going to happen, potentially with Kate Blanchett. Um possibly you know winning again but uh yeah, yeah I, I, I that one didn't throw me i have to say all right no that's interesting uh well let me give you the opportunity to talk about the revenant before before i sully everyone's ears in general i liked it by the way but there's there's a few complaints but what did you think of the revenant i thought it was terrific i thought that the middle section dragged appreciably and i i think it could have been tightened at the end of the day you know there's a lot of talk about dicaprio winning for best actor and while he's very good in it it felt more of a physical performance than an actual emotional performance. And, and not that it's bad in any stretch, but I just didn't, I mean, if, if this is the year we honor him for his work and all his activism and all what he's done for Hollywood, I kind of get that in a sense, but I just like, this is not his best performance. I, I thought yeah. it was more compelling in uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, frankly. Yeah. That's not a movie that I loved, but he was great in Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, there's some obvious complaints about this movie. It's definitely longer than it needs to be. Sometimes movies are long. I have no problem with that. I didn't think this needed to be long. There's a certain point where I just wished the bear would come back and finish him off, you know? <laughs> but, you know, the the revenge portion of it, it's like a separate, like, mini-movie within the movie, you know? And, yeah. and that was all fascinating. It just, it, it took a while to, to get us to that point. Uh, it looked beautiful, you know? It was a really well-made movie, uh, cinematography is great. Should win for all that. Uh, I think that the bigger revelation than Leo is Tom Hardy, who I forgot was in the movie, and I was just like kept looking at that character. I'm like, wait, who is that? 
why, why don't I remember who that actor is? And then it dawned on me. I'm like, you idiot. Tom Hardy's in this movie. But I really didn't remember the, because he managed, you know, as he often does in, in some of the roles he's been in. I mean, Bane, he wore a mask almost the whole movie, you know? So he just can vanish inside a character. And it's fascinating, really. I, I just really enjoyed his performance and thought he did a great job and yeah leo's great leo is it's like leo punches his time card he does some acting and he punches out it's not as exceptional as other things we've seen but is 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 this what gets him nominated i don't i don't know the answer for it you know it seems like a movie that critics love i mean they sure loved it at the golden globes which i know isn't usually a great indicator but you know in this case it could be Usually the best actor category is very competitive, where one, two, or three people could easily win in a weaker year. This year, it's, a, it's not as powerful. It, 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 I think the competition is much less stiff, which is one of the reasons why I think he will win. But getting back to Tom Hardy, yeah. I feel like Hardy has a quality that Russell Crowe had earlier in his career, where he just he was so good, and he could so kind of get involved with the character that I forgot it was Russell Crowe. It, and I don't get that with like a De Niro. De Niro is always De Niro, no matter how great he is. That's but very Russell true. Russell yeah. kind of just faded into into his role, and I think Hardy does that as well. But I have to say, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick Mad Max again. I thought he was very mediocre in that movie, and I thought the the role was underwritten. It was all about Charlize Theron. Yeah, that's a great point. It's people talk about how great Charlize Theron is in that movie, and she was. But yeah, it's it's almost like well, how about how about giving us a little bit more Max, you know, just yeah. a little. And yeah, it's true. And you wonder, I'm like, are we going to get more of him in other movies? Why why was this her movie? That's a great point. As and I did like the movie, but not in the way that people are talking about it. You know, like that's the kind of movie that I know my wife won't like. And I told her, I'm like, yeah, it's good. I saw it without you. But then you just had people that are like, no, 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 she has to see it. No, she doesn't. She's not going to like it. Why should she have to see it? Don't get carried away. It's not one of those movies. You you know, but uh, uh, and you're saying that the competition for actor in a leading role and you look at it, you know, it's Brian Cranston and Trumbo, Matt Damon, The Martian, Fassbender and Steve Jobs. Eddie Raymond is the Danish girl. That's another DVD that's sitting there waiting for me to watch. Uh, I feel like not seeing it, but understanding the film and the subject matter. Eddie Redmayne could be a contender. Have you seen the Danish girl, Christian? Yeah, I mean, he's very good in it. I think the chance of winning back-to-back is extremely yeah. rare. Very but true. But I also look at, I think each each film has a potential problem. Trumbo didn't make much money at all. Uh, the reviews for the film itself are mediocre. So I think sometimes if a movie, if an actor is great in a movie that's great, I think there's more of a momentum. That's why maybe Matt Damon can pull it out. I think Matt Damon is a terrific actor, and I don't think the culture gets that he's so good in, in different performances maybe because he's you know doing born this week and doing the kind of popcorn movies a lot but yeah that's a good I'm point he, he really does go back and forth a lot matt damon mm-hmm. and then even fastbender who i thought was terrific in steve jobs i had a i had a significant issue with that movie i just didn't think it was very entertaining i thought the structure was all poorly um considered i mean I, so that was a movie that was going to be you know best picture best director best screenplay and it didn't get any of that, so I, yeah. I don't begrudge the best actor nom for him because I think he's good in it, but uh, I don't think that's going to help him out. No, and that was one of those movies that I just had no interest in, and you know, it, it's not because there had just been a, a Steve Jobs movie, you know, where how can you improve upon what Ashton Kutcher's done? But you know, we try, we go on, we yeah. do what we can, but. 
at the same time, I was just like, you know, I'm just not interested in a movie about Steve Jobs' life. If I really wanted to know about it, I'd read that book that was a bestseller that, you know, I can't remember the name of the author, but we had him on the radio show. You know, I'm like, I don't know that I need to see the movie. And I understood. I, I read about how it was structured and all that. I love Danny Boyle. You know, I mean, I think he's fantastic. But at the same time, it's just like, that's not going to bring me to a movie. Also, it didn't help that it was written by Sorkin. You know, I'm like, I don't need to watch you know, Sorkin dialogue for that long. And I can't say that I was disappointed that he didn't get uh, nominated for a screenplay. Unless, of course, I'm wrong and he did, but I, I didn't think he did. Pretty sure he did not. Yeah, because it's, yeah, adda- no, it's an adapted Sorkin- screenplay. So, yeah, he didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. He didn't. So I've admired some of Sorkin's work in the past. I think he's on a little bit steady downhill yeah. slide, I, and I think this is in, indicative of that. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that there was some great work, obviously, a few good men alone, you know, but at the same time, you know, sometimes you, sometimes it's about rooting against people. So we have, you know, some of these. So the best director, uh, actually, I didn't want to. I wanted to ask you about, you know, the nominees for actress in a leading role. It's some of the that we've talked about um, the actress in Brooklyn, whom I don't know. Uh, Kate Blanchett, Carol, Brie Larson for Room, Jennifer Lawrence for Joy, who there there will be no joy in Mudville if she wins. Um, I don't know who Charlotte Rampling is, and I don't know what 45 Years is. And that's a major category for a nomination that I don't know the actress or the movie. What is that? You know, that is one that I did not see. It's one of the few films I've yet to screen. And she's obviously a veteran actress. I don't know much about the film itself. It's obviously a uh, older couple involved, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the bigger surprises. And sometimes those indie films do sneak in. And that's you know, listen, I don't want to, I don't want the nominations to be extraordinarily predictable. So I'm glad that there are a surprise or two along the way. That said, um, I've been watching. Uh, now her name, I'm, I, I actually read up on this today. It's Sertia Rounin. I think that's how you say it. I hope I got it right. I'm so glad I didn't Brooklyn. say. I didn't even try to say say or receive Ronan. That's probably what I was going to say. So yeah, I'm glad you said it. Mind. Yeah, <laughs> but she's a terrific actress. Now she was a child actress in multiple films. She was in Atonement. She also was in Hannah, which is maybe the best action movie that most people have not seen. So if you've missed that one, you like action, check it out. But uh, she's one. Of the, she's a Jodie Foster, uh, you know, 2.0 child actress, super talented segueing beautifully into a young adult actress. I, I can't wait to see what she does next. She's lovely. She's talented. And she's younger than Jennifer Lawrence. So. Well, well, there you go. Now, uh, as you kind of look at some of these movies, you know, and we can break them down, you know, you look for the director, you know, you got Room, Revenant, Mad Max, Spotlight, Big Short. You just look at that, you figure Revenant or Big Short, maybe Room, who knows. But do you think one of these movies is going to be the big winner? Do you think it'll be a big night for The Revenant like it was at the Golden Globes? Or do you think it'll kind of split the ballot and a couple here, a couple there for everything? Yeah, I think it's going to be a mix and match night. Yeah. I can't see any one particular film running away with it. No one film is that good, and the, the dominations are kind of all split up in a sense. So, yeah, I, I mean, you really think that Mad Max is going to run the table? It's a sci-fi dystopian <laughs> movie. I'm, it's a miracle. It's up for so many awards as it is, so... Yeah, no, I know. Voters it's just Oscar voters. They're going to yeah. act the way they've been. Yeah, Mad Max is up for 10 awards. If it wins 10 awards, I'm definitely going to have to watch it again because I'm like, I kind of remember it being sort of fun, but uh-huh. not, you know, not 10 Oscar winning. Fun. Anyway, Christian, there's uh, there's so much to talk about, but 
I don't care what wins best original song as long as it's not that terrible song by Sam Smith from Spectre, which won at the uh, the Golden Globes. What an awful James Bond song, you know? Like if Lady Gaga wants to win, that's fine. I got no, I you know she's a musician at least for God's sake. But what a you know what a song that just falls flat for a James Bond movie that I don't know what you thought about it, but I feel like Spectre itself fell flat, and the movie, I guess, is a perfect representation of that. Yeah, I I agree. I couldn't agree more. I thought the first scene in Spectre was pure, blissful Bond, and the rest of it got worse and worse, and how you can hire Christoph Waltz to be a Bond villain and then fumble it, that's criminal. I mean... That there should be some sort of charges set up against. Yeah, no, that's a great point. An actor who looks and sounds like he was born to play a Bond villain, and and you don't get it right. Uh, anyway, Christian, we had so much to talk about, and uh, our friend Thaddeus McCotter, he can be a little chatty, so we've kind of <laughs> run out of time. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have you back next time, and uh, we'll talk about some more stuff. Uh, are there any final thoughts for Oscar movies that you didn't get in, Oscar nominations, su- su- surprises, snubs, anything like that that you want to get in before we go? Well, I'm just glad that uh, Quentin Tarantino didn't get any major nominations <laughs> for his work specifically because his speech would have been insufferable. That's all I'll say. But at the same time, some of us kind of like the train wreck factor, and, uh, you know, it, he got himself in trouble at the uh, Golden Globes because he used the word ghetto, so that might have been worth Yeah, Yeah, I, you and I have a slight disagreement on Hateful Eight because you make points about what you didn't like about it that I don't even disagree. It's a waste of 70 millimeter to shoot a film that mostly takes place in a stagecoach and a shack. So there's a few scenes that look great in 70 millimeter. But at the same time, you're just like, well, did this movie have to be in 70 millimeter? Is this the movie that you insist be shown in 70 millimeter? Look, it looked great. I'm glad I saw it in 70 millimeter, but it didn't need it. And uh, I kind of liked the talkiness of it. I had no problem with it. It was just like, you know, it just didn't need to be on that giant screen. You know, I was just like, oh, I would I would watch them sit in that stagecoach for another hour, but I'm probably in the minority. It really had this feeling, though, because when I saw it, there was the intermission, which I guess not everybody sees it that way. The portion of the movie after the intermission, you just felt like the first movie was directed by someone else, and then Tarantino came in and said, all right, I'm going to finish this movie for you. I'm going to do this last hour plus, and it's going to be a Tarantino movie. It just felt like well, you know, it felt like his movie at the beginning, but they're really very different movies at that point. Well, absolutely. And I also thought that um, for the first time, I found the, the violence in a Tarantino movie to be gratuitous, where I didn't, en- I didn't enjoy it in that little kid level where I'm you know, 15 yeah. years old again, and, and oh, cool, there's an exploding head, I'm going to cheer that scene. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I never mind when Tarantino goes there, and here I kind of did. Yeah, I, I, not from a stuffy factor. It just no. Look, I understand. Yeah, I found it a little bit more jarring in Django, but you're absolutely right in this one. It's just like, yeah, okay, we get it. You know, yeah. and look, there's there's some great moments in it, but it's not one of those movies that if somebody tells me they didn't like, I feel like well, how could you not? Because there's a lot of re- I know all the reasons why you could not like it. You know, it's not it's not that hard to believe, really. So, anyway, Christian, well, we appreciate that, and uh, we're going to talk to you about some other stuff in the the very near future. So, uh, thank you for your time, Christian Toto, and that's of course HollywoodInToto.com. You're the editor of HollywoodInToto.com, and on Twitter at HollywoodInToto. 
And as we wind down here on this black cast where we've talked about the passing of David Bowie, I wanted to go out with this acapella rendition of Under Pressure that he did with Freddie Mercury. A lot of people pass this around on the internet, but it's amazing to actually listen to. So I'm going to shut up and we'll see you next time on the black cast. Shut